Some decisions can be rather hard to make. Things such as which college should I go to? Should I go to college at all? Whom should I marry? What do I want to do with my life? Should I have surgery now or postpone it to later? Some decisions are actually life or death decisions. Should I choose to live? Shall I choose to die? Paul speaks of a life or death decision that he is in the process of making. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, it reads as follows. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he speaks of this being hard-pressed between the two. The two choices are to die and be with Christ, or to live and continue on and be able to minister to the Philippians. As we work through this passage, one might wonder, why Paul is talking this way at all? Why is he speaking as though the decision were up to him as to whether he lives or die? He says, I, I can't decide. Well, Paul, who are you to decide? Is it really Paul's decision? Is he really going to make the determination as to whether he's in prison or out of prison, dies a martyr's death, or continues on? After all, that decision is ultimately God's to make. It's in God's hands. Well, that is true. The decision is God's, and it's in God's hands. However, Paul is wanting to help the Philippians to gain a perspective on life and death. He wants them to understand the thought process that he's going through as he realistically sits in a prison and thinks about the possible outcomes. As he's sitting in prison, he's saying to himself, you know, there's, there's two outcomes to this. One is that I could die, that I would become a martyr, and I would be giving my life for my faith. The other outcome is, well, I could be released, and I could return and minister to the Philippians once again. Last week, we noted that the Apostle Paul was trying to comfort the Philippians by telling them that his imprisonment was not a hindrance to the gospel, but rather that his imprisonment actually furthered the gospel of Christ. And we looked at the ways in which that was true last week. Now, Paul is seeking to help the Philippians contemplate whether his imprisonment would end in life or death. Was he going to be released and live, or would he die a martyr's death? As we think about those two options, we ask ourselves what thoughts were going through Paul's mind as he contemplated these two very different outcomes. 
This morning, I don't have a clear-cut outline for you as I normally have. For as we work through this text, what we have in our passage is a logical progression or steps in which Paul is working through in his own mind solving this dilemma of life or death and what God might be doing in that life and death decision. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm just going to do a running commentary. I'm just going to read and then make some comments and read and make some comments and read and make some comments until we work our way through the entire passage. And then at the end, I'm going to take some time to make application and what we learn from this, this passage. But most of the application is coming at the end. All right, as we begin, Paul is convinced that God will give him the courage to glorify Christ whether he lives or dies. So he begins with that confidence. For he says in verse 19, I know, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. And now the statement, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul has confidence that God will give him the courage to glorify God, whether it means Paul's life or Paul's death. Now notice the source of that courage. First, that courage will come as a result of the Philippians' prayers for Paul. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers... So he's teaching them that those prayers that they're offering for Paul are, are pretty essential. God is going to give him help. God is going to give him grace. God is going to give him courage. But it's going to come as a result of the prayers of the people of God. This isn't a courage that is innate to Paul. It isn't just part of his physical makeup or his um, personality. But this is a courage that's going to come as a result of the prayers of God's people. Secondly, the source of that courage is the working of the Spirit of God. Notice verse 19. For I know that through your prayers, and now this, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he knows it's going to be the prayers of God's people, and it's going to be the working of the Spirit of God that is going to produce this courage in him. Paul has a godly confidence that he will bring honor and glory to God, whether in life or death. For deliverance here is deliverance from acting shamefully and dishonoring Christ. Notice in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. King James uses the word, my salvation. Initially, what he is referring to is the fact that God is going to spare him. But the sparing that he's referring to is found in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. Okay, so the deliverance is deliverance from shame. 
deliverance from bringing dishonor and glory to God. He is confident that God is going to deliver him from his own weakness, from his own uh, limitedness, that God is going to give him that ability to conduct himself in such a way that he will not be ashamed. He can face life and he can face death. Paul is confident that God will grant him the courage to glorify Christ either in the way that he lives or the way that he dies. Second half of verse 20. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul has this confidence, the third source of this confidence. The first was the prayers. The second was the spirit and working of Jesus Christ. Now the third source of this confidence is his past experience. Notice verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full courage, and now these words, now as always, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, I have experienced God's help in the past. This isn't the first occasion that Paul had experienced imprisonment. This isn't the first time in which his life was on the line. And God had ministered grace to Paul. Paul was able to go back to cities that had stoned him and had the courage to walk back in that very same city that had stoned him previously and share the gospel. Paul says, I know from past experience <clears throat> that God has helped me and he will help me again in the future. Plainly put, he says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is what Paul is about. Then Paul describes the difficulty of making the choice between life and death. Verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Between the two choices of life or death, Paul prefers death. Verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. Now these words, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. So if erupt to Paul, as he thinks about life or death, Paul says, I'd rather depart and be with Christ. The reason that he would rather die and be with Christ is for that would be far better for him. Notice at the end of verse 3, for that is far better. That is far better. However, for Paul to continue to live would be more valuable for the Philippians. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It's more necessary on your account. Now there's an interesting thought that this brings up. And that is that, first of all, we know that no one person is indispensable. No one person is 
absolutely necessary in this world. There are others that can carry on. As Paul is in prison, he's going to be writing, and he tells them that he's going to be sending Timothy to them. We looked at that last week. Uh, Timothy is going to come there to receive him, welcome him, and Timothy is going to be a big help to them. And yet Paul says, it is necessary for you. Even though our lives are not indispensable, it doesn't mean that they aren't important. It doesn't mean that the work that we do isn't crucial for the kingdom's sake. Our lives are important as God chooses to use them. As God wants our lives to bring glory and honor to him. As he has equipped us with various gifts and abilities, as long as God chooses to use those gifts and abilities, then we are necessary. God chooses to work through us. That is what creates the necessity. So as long as I'm on the face of this earth, as long as you are on the face of this earth, there is work for us to do. There is a reason for our being here. I will say more about that later. So being certain that it would be more valuable for the Philippians that Paul lives rather than dies, he is convinced that he will continue to live. Verse 25, convinced of this, that this is that it's more valuable to the Philippians for him to live rather than die. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why is Paul so convinced? It's not by revelation. It's not that God had visited him in the middle of the night and told him what the outcome would be. The conviction, he says, is knowing that it is necessary for him to be with the Philippians. Why is so, Paul so convinced? First, because of the Christian principle that the needs of others are to come before our own needs. Look at Philippians 2.4. Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There is a tremendous unfolding of themes in the book of Philippians. Uh, I wish I had the time to work through these, these themes in their entirety. How the, the book has kind of an onion layer to it. You, you, you have these introductory thoughts, and then they're brought up time and time and time again in a little different form. He starts with the theology, and then he makes the practical applications. So he talks in chapter 2 about the mind of Christ. There we find out that Christ dies. He doesn't live. He doesn't continue on. Why? Because of an interest for others. In, in the case of Jesus Christ, it's in the best interest of others that he dies. So that sin can be forgiven. And so that there can be a redemptive 
quality to the work of God. Then he talks about the example of Timothy. Turn with me to 2.19 to 21. Philippians 2.19 and 21, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like-minded who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's saying Timothy seeks not his own interests. An example of verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Paul is saying, I'm not looking to my own interest here. My interest would be to die as game. But I'm not to look at what is most important for me. I'm to look at what's most important for you. And Paul says, because it's most important for you that I live, then I'm convinced that I'm going to live. There are two things that convinces Paul of the necessity that the Philippians have for him to live. The first is given in verse 25, where it says, Convinced of, it, of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all, first for your progress in the faith. You need to mature. You need to develop. You need to learn more. I'm going to send Timothy, and he's going to be a help to you. But you need me at this point in your existence. At this point in your maturity level. At this point in your development as a church, Paul says, you need me. He's not being arrogant. He's not being proud. He's simply saying that in the sovereignty of God, in the gifts and calling that God has given to Paul, Paul says, I'm needed. Therefore, God is going to send me to you. And then secondly, he says this. The first was for progress, and then at the end of verse 25, joy in the faith. Joy in the faith. Paul is convinced that God wants to give joy to the Philippians. And therefore, God is going to send Paul to them. Now let me give you a a practical example of this. Turn with me to Philippians 2.25. Paul had experienced joy when God spared Epaphroditus' life. Verse 25 of chapter 2. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says Epaphroditus was near to death, but God had mercy and spared Epaphroditus' life. And then he says, but God didn't just have mercy on Epaphroditus. 
He had mercy on me. Paul refers to himself as having sorrow upon sorrow. Now, this wasn't a, a cakewalk for Paul to be in prison. There were issues that were associated with it. There was reasons for discouragement. Paul is a real human being going through real suffering. And Paul says, my, what a toll it would have taken on me if Epaphroditus died. Here is a good brother. Here is a person who came to minister to my need. Here is a person that you sent with a gift to help me. And then if God would have taken his life, Paul says, that could have been the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. That just have been sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28. Chapter 2. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. So when Paul says that he is going to come to them for the progress of their faith, and their joy in their faith, Paul is referring to their own hardships, difficulties, and miseries. And Paul is saying, God is not going to take me away from you. That is one hardship and difficulty that, that God is not going to put you through. But God is going to allow me to return so that you may have joy. Again, I'm going to make these applications at the end. Paul believes that he will continue to live for it will bring the greatest glory of God. Verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's desire is that whether he lives or dies that he'd bring glory to God. And he, can, he concludes in this particular instance, in this particular situation, the greatest glory that can be brought to God is not in his, life, in his death, but in his life. That it's going to be a cause of rejoicing. It's going to be a cause of usefulness. For, for Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. Okay. That's the foundation. That's the background. Uh, that's what the text says. So now let's spend some time and some application of these very important truths. What can we learn from this passage? First, death is preferred to life only when we are going to be with Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. However, death is preferable to life only when it results in our being with Christ. Notice verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. The gain is in being with Christ. And being with Christ is far better than life. 
But please be assured that to enter a Christless eternity, to die and not be with Christ is not gain. That's loss. That is not far better. That is far worse. You know, I will hear people that have loved ones, and I understand the emotional and passion response that people have to seeing loved ones who are suffering. And people will say, well, at least their suffering is ended. At least their mercy is, uh, excuse me, at least their misery is over. Now they are in a better place. That is true if they know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. If their sins are forgiven and they have a relationship to Jesus Christ. But if a person does not have a relationship to Jesus Christ, no matter how awful their life is now, it is far worse in eternity. That is why it is so important that we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can only say that to die is gain if you can say, for me to live is Christ. If you can't say, for me to live is Christ, you can't say to die is gain. Now, the converse of that is also true. And that is... No matter what the circumstances of life are, no matter how good of health we might be in, no matter how young we might be, no matter how much of our future may be before us, no matter how much potential that we may have, and no matter how much of life we have not yet experienced and could look forward to. No matter what, if you are a child of God, to die is gain. To be with Christ is better than anything that you could experience in this life. That for that individual, now I realize there's cause for us to lament. I realize that there is cause for us to sorrow, that we are not going to be with that loved one. But I'm talking about the person who died. If they know Christ, it's better. No matter what their condition, no matter how good it is, it's better if they know Christ. And for the person, no matter how hideous the condition, if they don't know Christ, it's for the worst. Second application. God takes into consideration the, other, the welfare of others when we die. God takes into consideration the welfare of others when we die. God takes into account, for example, other people's need of us 
Paul said in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. We can be assured that if we are a child of God and God takes us home, that he will provide for the welfare of those that are left behind. We can be assured that God is not indifferent to the needs of our loved ones, the needs of our church, the needs of our community, that God takes into account our usefulness, and yes, even our necessity in the lives of others. That should bring us comfort. That should bring us encouragement. Even as the psalmist says, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. I can be assured that if God takes me home today, that any needs that my family have, any needs that the church has, they will all be provided. For God will keep me here as long as I'm needed. If he takes me, I'm not needed anymore. You know, that's uh, an important lesson to be learned in watching a loved one die. People that are of any caliber, people that are godly, have a concern for those that are, leaving, that are being left behind. A dying husband is concerned about his wife. A dying wife is concerned about her husband. Parents are concerned about their children, their grandchildren, other people. And many times they have a real sense of duty. I cannot die for my wife can't get along without me. My husband can't get along without me. My children need me. When that is true, God will keep that person alive. When they're not needed, God will take them. And so I say to you, sometimes it's helpful when you have a loved one that is very, very close to death to say to them, it's okay for you to die. To give them the permission, if you will, we'll be okay. The Lord will take care of us. The Lord will provide us. He's mindful of us. You're leaving us in good hands. Speak of your faith, your appreciation for that person in your life. But let them know that <clears throat> but let them know that, that God has been preparing you. And God is enabling you. And you'll be okay by God's grace. 
Keep in mind that God takes into account not only the necessity of our life, but God also takes into account the sorrow that our death will bring to others. Paul is convinced that the Philippians need joy in their lives. Paul says, I don't know if Epaphroditus would have died. I'd just been one more sorrow upon sorrow. We can be assured that our loving, compassionate, tender-hearted God takes into account the impact, the emotional and spiritual impact of a death upon the loved ones. He will not take a loved one that is going to shatter your faith, that is totally going to undo you. Now, you may feel as though it will, but it won't because he'll give you the grace. Or he will spare that loved one simply so that you don't have sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. So let me say to you that here is where it is so important to recognize the sovereignty of God. For God is so different than we are. And we are reminded in the word of God that precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of one of his saints. That God does not take us home lightly or indiscriminately. But rather, it is a precious thing in God's eye. It is with a great deal of thought. It was with the intent of being a blessing to the one that is taken. With a recognition of what is going to happen to those that are left behind. Which is so antithetical to a person who commits suicide. That is the most selfish act that a person could do. For it doesn't take into account those that are left behind. The emotional impact of finding someone who has committed suicide. That sense of guilt, that hardship, that heartache. And if there is someone here that has experienced a, a suicide in your family, my heart goes out to you, and I'm not trying to compound your, uh, your hurt this morning, but what I'm saying to you is that we leave these things in the hand of God rather than taking them into our own hands, you know, and saying, oh, life is too hard, I can't go on. That's putting the interests of yourself before the interests of others. Look to God, and he will give you the grace. Third lesson 
Life and death are alike are to bring honor and glory to God. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It takes courage both to live and to die for the glory of God. Notice verse 20. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's supreme desire was that no matter what the circumstance is, that God would be honored and glorified. And he refers to the courage necessary that God will be honored and glorified in our lives and in our deaths. It takes courage to live for Christ. It takes courage to die for Christ. We're not talking about things for wimps here. We're talking about hard truths. Paul had suffered shipwreck. Paul had been beaten many times. Paul was in prison. It was going to require courage on his part to continue on. Please don't misunderstood what I said earlier. I'm not insensitive to the misery and heartache that must drive a person to suicide. I feel, I empathize with a person that is so desperate, that is so hurt, traumatized by life, that they see the only outcome, the only escape, being death. It takes courage to live for Christ. It takes courage to persevere. It takes courage to go on. It takes courage to face imprisonment. It takes courage to live our lives for Christ. And remember where that courage came from. The prayers of the saints. The Spirit of God. And past experience. May God grant us that courage to live as we should and to die with expectation that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And if you're a child of God, that's gain. That's a blessing. And God will take care of those that are left behind. But let me stress one more time at the end. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, death is the worst thing that you could ever experience in this life. It's never an escape if you don't know Christ. It's never to your betterment if you don't know Christ. If you're struggling this morning with life and death decisions and you don't know Christ, whatever you do, don't take your life. 
for it's not gain. But there's no reason this morning why anyone here can't place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died to take away our sins. Jesus Christ died to make it possible for us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Place your faith solely in Jesus Christ. I'm going to take a moment. If you have never, ever prayed to ask God to take away your sins based on the work of Jesus Christ, based on his dying on the cross, please ask God to take away your sins and begin a relationship with God to be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Please. And if you're here this morning and you know the Lord is your Savior, pray, if there's anyone here who doesn't, that the Spirit of God would open their hearts and minds to receive the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful such a passage such as this that helps us work through the issues of life and death. Thank you for what we learn from the life of the Apostle Paul as he shares with us his thoughts, what is going through his mind as he anticipates the possibility of both life and death. We thank you for the comfort that there is in knowing that, Lord, you are the sovereign one over life and death, and you will not take us as long as we are needed. You will take into consideration those that are around us, not only the necessity, but their sorrows, their heartaches. Lord, give us the confidence that to, to die is, is gain if we know Christ. And give us a holy fear this morning that to die without Christ is awful. Lord, I, I, I simply pray if there is anyone here this morning who has never prayed to receive Christ as their Savior, I pray that now would be that time. Now would be that day. If there's anyone here that, that wants me to pray for them, I'm not going to pray for you by name, but I want to take you in a generic sense before the throne of grace. If there's anyone this morning who, who wants to be saved, would you raise your hand, good and high, so that I can see it? Good and high. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We are thankful for your mercy and your grace. Oh Lord, give us the confidence that we can say to live as Christ, to die as gain. And give us a holy fear that if we can't really say that, that we would begin to think about the realities of a Christless eternity. 
of being separated from you forever and ever. Lord, may it be our supreme desire to be with Christ. I pray that you would comfort your people, those that have recently experienced the death of a loved one. Oh Lord, we, we know that for those that are left, it is difficult. We think of Thessalonians that teaches us that uh, we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. Lord, thank you for our loved ones who are in your presence. Thank you for the thought of being reunited. Thank you for the thought of having the certainty of being in your presence. Give us that certitude this morning as we place our faith and trust in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.